Hello there. It is a very sad day. Uh, Pat Smullen, the former champion jockey and Irish sporting legend, has passed away at the age of 43, if you didn't already know. Pat had suffered uh, for a long time with pancreatic cancer. When you say suffer, it's the wrong word because Pat was a champion, a consummate professional, an absolute gentleman of the highest order and he didn't he didn't suffer and as he explains here he didn't regard it that way and in that way he remained a champion even after he retired because he took everything that life threw at him and he did everything he could with it including a year ago this unbelievable legends race that he organized at the car which raised 2.5 million euros for cancer trials and research that's just who this man was and that's why you're seeing this outpouring for him because he was more than just a jockey he's a father of course and my thoughts are with francis and his three kids hannah patty and sarah it's a very very tough one it's always tough but all I said to my brother last night was that Pat Smullen would want us all to live our best lives and to smile and remember him and that's the whole reason for putting back out this episode for the crack we had across this hour and the way he spoke about his life his career, his love of the game his love of it all I want to preserve the memory of Pat Smullen and maybe introduce him and his strength to a few more people who might have missed it when it first came out. So rest in peace, Pat, and enjoy this episode of An Irishman Abroad with Pat Smullen. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Pat Smullen, it's just great to have you on the show at last. I've wanted to have you on for an awful long time, probably before this headline-making Legends race that you put together in September 2019. Maybe you could explain to people what exactly that race was if they were living under a stone and didn't hear about the epic size of the amount of money raised and what was involved. Well, first, thanks, Charles. Great to be great to be on the show. And uh, yeah. yeah, look, I mean, it was um, it was something that you know when I was first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That uh, well, not first, obviously, when we got through the initial shock, but all and got got into the 
process of we had to go through uh, just obviously we, we, we I wanted to do something myself to try and give back to, to the more more to the medical people that looked after me who did an amazing job and are doing an amazing job but um, but speaking to to uh, the nurses up and in Vincent's hospital that um, you know that they were saying to me that I had a little bit of a profile and uh, that you know pancreatic cancer wasn't getting much of a uh, much awareness and much funding and uh, so the more we got looked into it and uh, and inquired about doing something um uh you know it was quite shocking really that there was a few clinical trials and things like that that were already in motion and then had to stop with lack of funding and you know so that was quite alarming to me because obviously you're trying to cling on to anything that's that might be coming along to try and help 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 myself personally and then obviously anybody that was in 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 the same position so um you know, so that you know, obviously, you know, thinking what we do, and as you know, like I mean, a lot of things have been done as recall race days and at the races mm. or whatever like that. So we we were thinking about doing something like that. But then when we gave it, started giving a lot more thought, and especially speaking to the guys that rode in the race, and it was on Champions Weekend. So that's where we came up with the Champions uh, Legends race, and uh, and and it, it was a, a huge success. The outpouring of generosity, understanding, compassion and money towards you, your cause, the awareness and the legends race that you created. 2.5 million is the figure that was the headline that was made. It blew me away. It blew a lot of people away. It was it was nearly impossible not to be affected by it because I guess I know a little bit about horse racing. My father's a horse trainer for years, as many of the listeners will already know. My brother runs a stud farm in Kentucky and it's just been so in my life and so much my understanding of sport has come through being at racetracks since I could walk, <laughs> putting on my first bet with Francis Highland for 50p when I was six and knowing that this business is cutthroat and obsessive to the point where many of the jockeys we've had on have said that if you aren't obsessed, you won't prosper in it. Do you connect this flood of generosity, compassion and understanding that's come towards you with the kind of release that is there within these people and this great business and this great sport that they are each and every day expected to be hard as nails winning is the priority but then when one of their fellow colleagues goes down that it's like a funnel for for where that bit of humanity of them can go can do you understand what i mean by that and do you see anything in what i'm saying there Yes, a hundred percent. You know, it was, uh, and it is everything that you say. I mean, um, it's in a very unforgiving business, a very unforgiving sport. Uh, you know, and as you say, winning is everything. Um, so, it, it, you know, that that was my mindset, as you alluded to, uh, past jockeys that have been on the, on on your podcast. I mean, that I, I relate a hundred percent to that. I mean, I was obsessed with my 
my whole life was consumed by riding and winning and uh, to the point of where I'm a little bit embarrassed as looking back on on on, on really? how I be on how I behaved as a father and as a as a husband uh, throughout the, the, those number of years and it probably took something like this for me to have a reality check as to you know about being a, a good person but that said i mean this is an amazing industry an amazing sport uh it has given me everything that i have and on and my family and uh and as you know i mean it, it, it's it's not just about race riding it's so much more and it spreads all you know through so many aspects aspects of, of the industry but and equally every one of those uh, different jobs that are within the industry are hugely competitive as your brother will well tell you about you know the, the, the trying to buy and sell and mm. you know uh, breed breed good horses it's just a, it's a it's such a tough game but but that all being said i mean it was just overwhelming you know the the outpour of goodwill from everybody and i mean it came from the very very top of all the big or I don't like mentioning names mm. because I think it's unfair but like for the tops of the very very big organizations that are in this this, this industry right down to people that I I rode hard for that were just members uh, when I say just I shouldn't say that word but that were members of the syndicate yeah. and they were uh, you know I, I was so uh, taken aback by just the, the, you know from the, all across the whole industry everybody wanted to get involved everybody wanted to help in any way they could and people on a personal level were trying you know offering me any support that that I could you know that if I needed in any shape or form but uh, you know really all I needed was just the, the good medical care that I that I got and uh, and after that you have to do the rest yourself so but I was I, I must admit I, overwhelmed is the word I've used it before and and I don't think I, I was ever overwhelmed in my life before mm. but I, I, I understand the meaning of the word now because I was just, uh, I, I, you know, taken aback. I, I and really, to be honest with you, I can't put it into words. The, the you know, the the feeling that I that I experienced of goodwill from everybody and you know there's a little bit of me that that makes me proud to be honest with you because you know I it it, it I must have conducted myself reasonably well in in the 25 years that I was lucky enough to be a jockey yeah, in, sure. in the game so I, I take a bit of comfort from that well Pat it doesn't surprise me when you say that you'd never really felt overwhelmed in this way until this point because from observing the game and anyone who's even watched a race on Channel 4 one time and that their only involvement is maybe Aintree and Cheltenham and Epsom, they'll know that to do what you did in your life at the highest level, as you say, in this unforgiving environment where winning is everything and second place is failure, you can't be overwhelmed you have to remain there needs to be a stillness there needs to be a calm that comes over you so that the insane circumstances that you find yourself in and the incredible physical stress that you're under doesn't get you or impede your physical performance that uh, training that you received through the sport becomes the kind of bedrock 
of how you were going to take on this illness and from the perspective of just physically not having a pick of fat on you, being in the shape of a 19 year old, as your doctor said, when you uh, are diagnosed, you're you're ready for this because of, as you say, this this business, this sport, this uh, ridiculous life choice that you made. My question is, you know what you're getting into with this thing and every jockey and person in horse racing, including my own father, (laughs) says that he remembers a time in his youth when he fell in love with the horse, when he could see that this is the only thing he wanted to do with his life. What was that moment for you? Uh, I think, to be honest with you, when I rode ponies in uh, in an early age, uh, I I loved the idea of it. But the the first time I rode a racehorse, I realised that I, I wanted to be a jockey. When I got the feel of riding uh, a thoroughbred, and you know, that obviously they're a lot quicker and faster than than the ponies and and the halfbreds. But uh, so when I got when I got the feel of actually what a, a racehorse felt like, uh, I I I just I knew there and then that I wanted to to be a jockey. And uh, so you know, it was from a very early age. I'd say I was uh, from the time I was twelve years of age. I, I knew that that this the career that I wanted to to pursue. Can you put that into words? Because Mick Fitzgerald said to me that same exact thing, that it was, I guess, similar to what people who ride motorbikes understand. The raw power, the sense that you're at one, you're communicating with this animal to produce a a performance that the animal wouldn't ordinarily do without you being there. Can you put into words, like, what is it? Like, it's obviously a kind of a really visceral thing that young lads and girls connect with. Like, you connect with this uh, sense that you are talking about there among all jockeys, that there's a moment where you sit on board and it feels like, I want this forever. No, no question. It was the love of the animal that really attracted me to to the job because um, you know obviously it's the adrenaline rush of riding a horse at the at the at the speed that they can get get up to. But um, but really and truly, it was the attraction of the of the uh, of the animal that um, that you can control it and and you know and you use its ability in a measured way to 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 win races and. Uh, you know, so I think that that was what really attracted me to it. I asked um, AP McCoy if how much of it is the jockey and how much of it is the horse. What would your answer be to that question? Because his was unusual. Yeah, I don't know how to equate it in percentage, to be honest with you. But I, I I've always felt that um, you know I think your ta- you know an individual's tactical awareness and. Uh, I, I don't think physical strength really comes into it. I think yes, you have to have a certain amount of it. Uh, I, me personally, if I was to put equated in percentages, uh, I I, re- I reckon it's eighty percent horse, twenty percent jockey. Right, because the because like you say, you, you the love of animals is is a fundamental part of it. But that sense that you mentioned in your answer there, that you can in some way control the performance or the potential of the horse the the reputation that you built for yourself was similar to AP in the ability to galvanize a horse to get over the line 
when others might fail. That must be a skill that begins with the ponies, but only once you're on a thoroughbred does it become something that you have to kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, develop a weird intuition or sense as to what this animal has in the tank, its personality, why, when, when is the right time to ask it and in what position to place it in for that question to be posed. I think you landed exactly on the word. I, th- I think it's sense. I think you have to have, you know, that, that ability to sense uh, a, a horse's um, capabilities and when, as you said, to to apply maximum pressure. It's judgment. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of things. But I, th- I think you're correct in thinking that may set other people apart from the from the general is there is it's just a sense of when to do it without having to think about it uh, because as you know especially in racing but in most sports i mean if you if you have to take time to think about what you're going to do it's too late it's you're over done yeah yeah you know so i i think i think you've landed on the word and you know now that i sit down and really think about it I think it's this, you know, when you can sense when it's the right thing to do and when to do it. I think that's a, that's a, you know, whether it's God given or what, but I think it's an ability that um, that that may just set, uh, you know, and I don't know, not put myself in the same category as the AP McCoys and 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 uh, and Frankie the Tories of the world, but uh, but I probably just ha- having the ability to do that or having that um, that that skill. Major set, uh, you know, the the, the elite away, uh, apart from from the the, the, the general the general uh, run of the mill riders, you know. Well, you don't need to put yourself in that category, Pat. The statistics put you in that category with the number of classics that you won, uh, Irish Derby and uh, Epsom Derby. The you know the figures speak for themselves, and I I, I often find <laughs> on the podcast Irish people are so reluctant. <laughs> To accept praise, I <laughs> know. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's 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 in our it's in our breathing. <laughs> yeah. I think, but uh, but no, I I actually genuinely do. You know, I do feel a little bit uncomfortable about when when I sit down and start speaking about it and people say things like that because you know, again, I suppose it's a real country Irish lads mm. way of looking at things. You're just. I am who I am, and they get on with things on a daily basis, and and I and I, you know, that's why maybe. Um, and I'd say that's why a lot of the lads like AP and uh, and Ruby and other lads that you've had on in the past, you know, and everybody, you know, uses the word obsessed with the job. And, you know, because um, at the end of the day, you, ne- you never seem to have enough. You know, it's always about, yeah, that what happened yesterday or today is over and you it's all about tomorrow. But I think that that mindset is what sets you know a lot of irish jockeys apart and if you as you know like you go around the world you'll meet good irish people that are jockeys obviously that we know but uh, but also um good horse people that all around mm-hmm. the world and and uh, and that's because they just want to do better the whole time and uh uh, it, it is. It is definitely is an Irish thing. But going back to myself, uh, it, it is something that I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable about uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. spe- speaking about what 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 you may have done in the past. But uh, uh, but uh, look, I've been very very fortunate, very lucky, you know. Because uh, whilst you may have the skill and the ability, you are, you definitely need 
breaks in life and I was very lucky along the way that opportunities presented themselves at the right time if you I don't know if you can remember back when I when I started you know it was there was a big shuffle of jockeys in Ireland which only happens maybe once every 20 years when you know we had Christy Roach retiring and mm. Mick Canan moved on to Ballydale and you know, all the other jobs were, were, were taken up, but there was a spot in Derma Wells and, and I just happened to be the, the next up and coming young lad at that time. But uh, if it, if that happened two years previous or two years after, the opportunity might not present itself. So, And I may have to have done what a lot of other lads had done in the past and, and, and go to England looking for opportunity. So I, I was extremely lucky along the way and, and of that I've never, ever uh, lost sight of, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, luck is a big part of this game, right? Because there are so many uncontrollables, right? Uh, outside of simply just vacancies, uh, like Richard Hughes was our next door neighbour at yeah. the time, again, a former guest of the show. And he talked about, you know, just needing the planets to align a little bit like they did for you in that that spot becomes available. You're the hot but that, young that, jockey that, that, at the that, time. That that's prime example because uh, now that you say it, and I know that Richard lived next door to you. But uh, Richard, if Ri- I was two years or three years after Richard, and if you know Richard, if that opportunity presented itself to Richard, he would have been the guy that got mm. it if it was two or three years earlier, and uh, and he would have uh, ended up you know being Dermowell's stable jockey. Of that, I've no doubt. But uh, but. He had moved to England and had established himself there, and uh, you know, so yeah, you know, I, I can't, I can't overemphasize, uh, you know, look. I don't know whether it's the same in li- in every every business in life. I don't know, but all I know is my business, and uh, but I do know that luck is a huge part in it, and and the luck of getting on, you know, good horses coming along. You know, the the, the, the these horses that I've been lucky enough to ride in the big races and win big races. They don't come along every year, mm. and uh, so uh, you know I was fortunate that some came along in the th- in my time that I was with Dermot, and uh, you know so I, I, I you know as I said you can have all the ability and drive in the world, but if the if the opportunities don't present themselves, you, you your career can come and go without uh, achieving what you hope to achieve. Yeah, like I remember my father saying the sentence that you know all luck is is when hard work and preparation meets opportunity. So it isn't just, you know, sent from the heavens. You have to have done the work in yeah. order to exploit the opportunity. The opportunity arose and you certainly exploited it. But well, that's, hard- an excellent, that's an excellent way of putting it because uh, of, of what I do know and I, you know, let it be trainers, jockeys, uh, stable staff. You know, people work so so hard in this industry, and uh, and what, the one thing that really frustrates me a little bit at the moment is is the, the you know the welfare issue that uh, you know the general public are you know and, and sometimes uh, racing lets itself down. Of that, I'm not. I, I don't dispute, but like you've lived with it for for the first uh, your teen up until your teenage years of of living with horses and you know you know we 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 go to the point of where you you go without food yourself to make sure that the horses were fed first you know and uh, and that is something that is being overlooked and shadowed a, a little bit in the present time is just the, the welfare of the horses and the the, the man hours and labor that is mm. put into 
looking after them is uh, is unquestionable in my opinion man. yeah and I, like I do want to get to that and I had hoped to get to that in the second half but I guess we could talk about it now because as you bring it up this is a big concern in, in the game at the moment and especially towards California the questions are being raised over the the animal rights involved. And when I spoke to my brother about this, he too raised that point that if people mm. only knew the prioritization of the animal and exactly how much care is given uh, and how many hours are put in to assure the best possible comfort of the animal in their respective situations, it would boggle their minds. But outside of that, as you say, the outsider, if we step outside of the stable, it seems hard to translate what we're talking about here from the sense of it's, you know, it's it's men riding around on on animals with shoes nailed to their feet in a situation where if they were to break a leg, they would be destroyed for the layman. That just the the ABCs and nuts and bolts of that doesn't make sense. What what hope is there of translating that? Because there's a real fear, Pat, that the game could be tr- in trouble in America. Oh, there's a huge huge fear of it, in a, in a, definitely. But you know, we have to remember though that there is going to be casualties uh, in all sports, whether it's human or equine. I, I mean, that that's unfortunately. Mm. That is part of the sport. You know, we see in Gaelic games, only yesterday there was a footballer broke an ankle. Now, he will recover in six months' time. But unfortunately, thoroughbreds just cannot recover from a broken leg. because It's just not physically possible. So the humane thing to do is to put them out of, uh, you know, out of all pain and misery. And, and that that's, sounds dreadful, but it's it, that is the... the the, the reality of it. I don't They're think a bred- lot of people know that. Let me stop you there. I don't think a lot of people know that. So it's actually not possible for the animal to recover from a broken leg. They are not possible because obviously the weight of, of the animal, you know, if they've got a broken leg, a broken knee, a broken joint, you know, obviously it has to go into plaster. They're going to not uh, put weight on it. So obviously then all, all the weight is distributed to the other gotcha. three legs and then it's it, it, it's going to become problematic and uh, with, a, with a huge amount of weight on their other front leg or other hind leg and, and it won't sustain it. It's just not possible. You know, we, we, we as humans can go and lie up on the bed or on the couching. Obviously, mm. we're educated to know that to, how to recover. But unfortunately, horses are, it's just not possible. And, you know, the first thing that we, everybody that's involved in racing would dearly love to save them and try and get them to recover, even if they're not going to recover to be racehorses again. We would do anything to make to just to keep them alive and recover and give them a good uh, retirement. But it's just physically not possible. And it's the most heartbreaking thing that I have of 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 uh, being a jockey is when you unfortunately ride a horse that has broken a leg and if you're fortunate enough which 90% of the time they do they, they stand up and prevent me or a jockey from getting a fall they will just continue to find balance and pull them up and uh, uh, but for me to hold a horse when it's when it's been euthanized is the most horrible 
experience that you could ever experience as, as a as an animal lover and and as a as a as a jockey. It's just just absolutely heartbreaking and uh, you know so like I. Yes, how do we go about it? I don't know. But I think the authorities have to keep pushing to try and educate the general public uh, as much as we possibly can. I called on, uh, when I did the first interview, soon after my diagnosis and just going back on my career, mm-hmm. I called on, on people to, you know, use Twitter as a, as it's a, it's a platform now that whether we like it or, or not, it's there and it's there to stay. And I was asked, calling on all the stud farms and the racing stables to, to put a post up uh, what exactly happens on a daily basis in these studs and racing yards. And, and a lot of people have done that. And I think that is helping to mm. uh, you know, educate the general public on, you know, you can look at horses lying down at night in a great big bed of straw that, uh, that you, you, you would sleep in yourself, you know, and... and <laughs> And, and and you know the amount of nutrition that uh, you know that you know they're they're, they're treated as athletes. They're, you know there's huge ex- uh, research into nutrition and uh, and all sorts and all the vet- veterinary side of things is as it is in human. The medical side of things is uh, advancing all the time, and uh, you, you know it, it is it is quite remarkable how well looked after they are, and uh, it, it's it, there's onus on us as racing people to keep promoting and publicizing our daily movements with horses i live on a small farm in here in county offley and I, I even in my present state when you know you might not feel great i get up every morning and i go down and make sure that the mares and foals are are okay and they get priority over myself and then i then i think about myself for the rest of the day but they come first and my kids here with their ponies, and as you did when you were a kid, they you got up and made sure that they were taken care of and looked after, and and then you thought about yourself. And uh, you know yeah, that, no, that, that 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 needs to be publicised and documented, uh, and and educate the general public. I know there there is a, a negative side to it that looks negative, and it is unfortunate that. As I said, there is injuries and casualties, um, but I think if you sit down and look at look at all sports, there's going to be casualties and uh, and injuries, and and that is just part of of sport. But but final final question on this aspect of things, because it is only one part of all the things that we need to talk about. Pat, you know the buzz of crossing the line first. You know that it is addictive. You know that. A lot of your colleagues are fully addicted to that feeling, wanting to recapture that. And as you mentioned earlier, the the push for that race is done onto the next one was something I, I, I definitely struggled to understand as a youngster because I was like, well, when do we ever celebrate? When do we under like kind of enjoy the moment at all? No, the mm. next race is off in a half an hour. Uh, get your gear off and on we go to the next one. I couldn't quite wrap my head around that, but I, I guess I, I got older. I understood the, the addiction side of it. But for the animal, I wondered, I often wondered, does the animal enjoy it? What do you think of that question? I, I have no question, no doubt in my mind that they enjoy it. I mean, uh, and you can see when a horse wins. I've seen it so many times uh, uh, over my my career. You know, you go into the stable the next day and 
you know, you can see that the horses after growing in confidence. Uh, really? It, 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 you know, I've no doubt in my mind. I've not, and I know that might sound to the general public as a, as a mad thing and stupid, but I've seen horses' the demeanor change, they get confident, they get... And and they know and, and you know when 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 they when they are good when they're, they they know they're good and uh, mm. and they have that and they're the very same as humans. They, they know, some of them get cocky and they know that they're good. <laughs> and and then I, there's other horses that I that I rode that, that were good and rode and but they just went about their job and they were very, very understated and just you wouldn't know they were in the yard. But uh, they they've all got different uh, personalities mm. and uh, but I do think that they they you know they know when they win. I think I, I genuinely think they're very, very, they're very like humans in in lots of ways, you know. Yeah, I mean the picture you paint, and I'm kind of being brought back to Moore's Bridge where we used to live, and just that kind of idyllic quality to it. I remember Tady, my father, talking about just the heavenly aspect of riding out and seeing the horse's breath on a frosty morning, and this this sense that. You know, this closeness to nature, I guess, is, is what he was describing to me. And the sense that, why would you do anything else? Like, what, what would what, what would you be doing going anywhere else when, <laughs> when this is available? Yeah. Uh, to have it swiped away from you in the manner you did must have been really gut-wrenching, hard to take psychologically, and probably involved a certain amount of shock i'd imagine the the shock is the first word anyway you know when you're diagnosed and the words are said you know that you have cancer i mean that was just i knew i knew and francis knew there was something seriously wrong and without even saying to another that you know it look it, it's it's cancer you know you just uh, but but when the words are said to you by the the, the doctor or the specialist it is like being hit with a sledgehammer between the two eyes. It just, it was, uh, I, I can't put it into words, the feeling. I mean, it was just devastating. But thankfully, I had the mindset that, you know, I, I realized very quickly overnight, I, I, I was lying in the bed on my own, obviously, and uh, when everybody was gone home, and I was just thinking, right, well, it is what it is, and I can't change it now. So we just have to get on with it and deal with it as best we can. Uh, and 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 that I'd be honest with you, that was my mindset from where go, and uh, that's been hugely helpful. Um, but then you get to a point where you know you, you, everything's happening so quickly. Uh, you know, organizing to try and get the right medical people, get make a plan, what's going to happen next, blah blah blah. And but then when I got to a point where you're in that system and everything's going along, and thankfully everything seemed to be going the right way. Then you start to reflect on what's after actually after happening, and I think it was really after the surgery when I had the surgery, and uh, you know I was starting to feel well again, and uh, uh, you know I, I was thinking, oh, you know that's when it hit me that you know the race and the riding is is gone, it's over, and you know it took me a bit of time to announce my retirement, but in, in truth I knew it was never going to happen again, you know. Well, um, well, Pat, let's slow it down there a minute because we have the time to get into it. Like you say, the f initial sledgehammer of you and Francis, your wife, being told the word, your reluctance to even use the word yourself. I understand that it took you a long yeah. time to actually 
just say it for yourself that you'd always refer to it as a tumor which is something that a, a lot of people do because the word carries so much uh, weight in our culture and in our society that you know in some ways not even rejecting that word was part of the first step in the in the battle mm. for you yeah you don't have time to 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 take it in and i've heard you say a few times that you know we established our plan quickly we worked as a team me and francis there had to be a you, you know as you say that reflective moment where you you breathe out and you go well well this is it you're telling me though here that even in that breathe out moment, you still had the thought in your head, I'll get back, I will write again. Oh, yeah, no, I I, I was full sure for in, in the initial, you know, like in the first year, uh, I mean, I, we're, we're, mo- we're, we're close up on two years now, but for the first year when, uh, when I, after I had the surgery and, uh, you know, I got out, I, I distinctly remember getting out of the bed. No, it wasn't me getting out of the bed. It was the physios getting me out of the bed mm-hmm. to, to, to try and move around. for. And I, this was the next day. And, and then I could see every day it was getting a little bit better. And, you know, I was thinking. And then, you know, the recovery was tough and long. And I had a complication. I had to have a second surgery. And so that sort of knocked me back. But when I got home, eventually, just before Christmas, and, you know, I was, uh, you know, enjoy Christmas at home. But. You know, I was starting to get a little bit more mobile and I was starting to, you know, get back uh, out d- down the yard and doing little bits and bobs around the farm. And I was thinking to myself, I, I can do this. I can get back to, to, I could get back to riding a horse. And uh, and then, you know, I got back to riding out on the car every morning with Dermot. And uh, and I was thinking, you know, I, 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 and I, I in my own naive way, I, I don't know whether it was, but anyway, I kept thinking, you know, I could, I think I could do this, and uh, never saying anything to Francis or anybody, but in my own mind. But um, but then I realised that, you know, I was get, start, which is a very, very good thing. Don't get me wrong, but I started to gain weight, which is uh, very, very important in, in, in mm. with, the, with 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 what I have and to to fight and keep my immune system strong. And I was gaining weight every week and. Uh, and then I realised, you know, what I, I I couldn't I couldn't go back to what I had to do to be at a at a racing weight and and uh, and put my body through that again. And uh, and then the the, the realisation that, that came on me, I said, how could I go back to punishing my body to get down to a riding weight that has to you know that's sustainable to to make a living out of it after all the good work that the surgeon had done for mm-hmm. seven hours stood over me for seven hours and uh, and the recovery, you know, thankful to all the staff, you know, nurses and oncologists, everybody, you know. So I, I just said, you know, this, I can't do that. I just can't do that. And that that's what made my decision. But it took, when I did make the decision and the realisation of it, that it's over, it took me a long time, to be honest with you, to, to come to terms with it in my own mind. Is that because it, it, the the game itself, or the the buzz, or the lifestyle is so addictive, or was it that within Pat Smullen, as you, it, despite your reputation as maybe the nicest man in the game, that there's a stubborn prick in there who was no, like, no, absolutely no, no. not, you won't beat me. I was I was more than stubborn. I was a right prick. I mean, that's the long and short of it. I got back to what I said to you about my behaviour early on. In the public eye, oh, he seems a very placid, 
goes about his job, quiet type of fella, and that that's that was the perception that I I I, I portrayed of myself, uh, and and I did. I like don't get me wrong. I, my dad was, you know, always drilled it into us. You get up, get up, and you work and do your job, and that's it. No frills, and you know. So that that's the way I live. But but uh, but there was a there was a, a bad streak to me there. But I, but I'd be honest with you, Jared. When I really sit down and think about it now. I'm happy now and content in my mind that I'm not. I wasn't a bad person. Mm. It was the way. It was the wasting and the control of weight and dehydrated ninety percent of the time. It affects you mentally. I've no, and it's only done now that I realise that. And that was, uh, and then on top of that, being driven to succeed. And and as I as I alluded to early on in the interview, uh, you know, I left school at a very young age, and this had to work. If it didn't work, where did I turn? What do I do? You know, so failure wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that drivenness did, sort of brought the worst out in me. I, there's no question. But you know, it has to. What do you What do you do? You'd be a nice person and be mediocre jockey are you you know but i'm sure there was a happy medium there somewhere but i didn't find it unfortunately when i was writing no but like like i talked to stephen ferris the ex rugby player about this Mm. very thing about the necessity of being a prick yeah to achieve at a high level in professional sport that like you say as eamon dunphy said (laughs) would he kill his granny (laughs) i mean yeah the, the the guy that will is is the one that becomes a legend and that we kind of accept that and under understand that a little more the more our sports people open up about it but as you say the the grind of it on you mentally and physically is intense and i find that anytime we talk to jockeys about this it's the bit that people come up to me in the street and say can you believe your man was licking crisps rather than eating food what yeah. what lengths did you go to when you say the things I would do to keep my weight where it needed to be? Can you tell us some examples or uh, situations uh, look, you found yourself uh, in trying to make weight? I was lucky in a, in the way that I got to terms with it sort of quickly, and that you know, I, I, you know, I I, I I still have it here. I had a small gym, a sauna, and I used to run with, with the sweat sweat gear on me every day on the treadmill and then into the sauna and sweat in the sauna every day religiously for uh, as long as I can remember. Uh, I did that day in, day out, and that that was that was how I controlled my weight. But, you know, I, I used to eat breakfast to get up and just go as long as I could without eating until then that it was just the hunger got the better of me and I'd have to... I tried to contain it to one meal a day as best I could, you know, that's how I sort of tried to control it. There's a lot more, a lot better ways of doing it now mm. with nutrition and education is a huge thing. I mean, we weren't educated, but you were sort of left to figure it out yourself and get on with it. You know, that to be honest with you, that's how it was when I started. But but like, I found myself like when I was a kid and desperate, like, I mean, you'd taken laxatives, taken, uh, you know, you, we used to call them pee pills, you know, yeah. all sorts of laxatives you do uh, and diuretics to try and keep the weight off and, you know, you dabbled around trying to do that and mix that with with, uh, with with exercise and all sorts of things. So you t- you got, when you get to the point of desperation and, and that happens when you're in your late teens, when, you know, you're you're developing as a, as a man and you're fighting nature and you do anything to try and keep the weight off or lose weight, and uh, 
So it, it, it's horrific what the younger lads are uh, and what lads had to had to do, and and even still, I mean, it's something that I've been well, you know, it's been well documented. Uh, my feelings now on on the situation with the weights, uh, uh, you know, the, I see the, there's just the, the the general public are getting bigger and bigger, and the kids that are in the weigh room are are huge, tall uh, lads that are. Yeah. Like, you know, when I started, I felt big. You know, I felt big in the weigh room. I felt like, oh, Jesus. And, and everyone thought that I wouldn't hold my weight to be a flat jockey. But when I left the weigh room, I, I was very, very small. <laughs> and, and that is the reality of it. And if, uh, if you were surviving on a meal a day, right, let's break it down here. But, but no, you know, yeah. one thing, though, Charlie, I want, is, is that the hunger never really bothered me. Okay. I, I, you know, I could, you know, uh, you, you'd suffer on and pick and, uh, you, know, you know, but it's, and it's, it's the dehydration, you know, yeah. when you're not taking in enough fluid, I, I just could, you know, that was the biggest, biggest battle for me was feeling thirsty the whole time. And that uh, is proven, uh, you, know, you know, Adrian McGoldrick, Dr. Adrian McGoldrick, mm. the mouth of work, you know, he's just, an, anyway, he's an amazing man, I've, everyone knows my feelings on him, but uh, but like, he has done extensive research on in this field, and it's proven, like, that you're, it affects you mentally, and, and now on reflection, I can see all that, uh, my behaviour, all that was was uh, you know it wasn't me I, that was not me as a natural person it was I was dri- to the point of being driven demented and uh, if I say that now it's easy for me I'm out of the, out of the game you know as regards the jockey but I think if 90% of the lads were true to themselves and spoke openly they'd tell you the same isn't that amazing like I don't think I've heard that articulated before Pat because my question that I was trying to get in with there was that if I miss a sandwich <laughs> during the day, yes. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not in great form. And, yeah. you know, to the point where I've been on film sets where I have an emergency lunchbox in case my blood sugar goes low mm. because, you know, you need to keep the mood up. Jockeys yeah, that, like that, that, yourself that, must have been that, in that, ferocious form. They must have just been but, in a terrible mood at all times. But uh, as you say about having your emergency lock, lunchbox, that's being a normal human being. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and like I see it here with my kids and with Francis, if they don't eat at lunchtime, they, they, you know, they, they, their 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 mood changes. But like I, I went for you know not eating. Two days was not an issue. Like I mean, and I, and I, people I struggle to believe that, but that was fact. I mean, you could have a mouthful of black coffee with a square of chocolate and keep going. That was that was what fueled you. And uh, now, uh, now, don't get me wrong; it's a lot better now. And and but that was how I dealt with it. And mm. you know, but it's, it, that that was just just the way it was. But uh, but as I said, it, it worries me now because. You're asking the kids of today who are much bigger, much taller, uh, much well, are better nourished than what maybe we were t- 40 years ago. You know, so it's, uh, it is something that concerns me. And I can see now when I was in the middle of it and riding, uh, I was like, God, just get on with it. You know, wasting was just part of being a jockey. That's just, just it. That's mm. it. If you want to be a jockey, put up and stop complaining and get on with it. That was my mindset. But now that uh, that I sit back and look at it and uh, and and really uh, you know examine it from a uh, from a from an outside looking in, uh, it does concern me and uh, about the younger kids of what they have to um, may resort to to doing 
to make weight and that concerns me. So when you spoke to Joe Malloy about the next chapter of your life, and I guess we are in this ballpark of suddenly you're out of it. And in spite of having to battle what you're battling and consistently facing into this really, really exhaustive, hard treatment that there isn't a listener out there that won't know someone that's been affected by this terrible illness and probably witnessed the effects of these treatments that I'm referring to, you are still out of the game and kind of like someone on a, a night out. You're sobering up to the world and what life is about. When you're coming to your senses, in a, in a sense, that you're kind of going... Oh, I was, I was, I was kind of locked in a kind of like you're in a romance with a girl where you've kind of lost your cop on altogether mm. and you're starting to see your kids and realize, oh, fuck, I, w- I wasn't the dad I needed to be here. What's yeah. that process like? And how do you kind of square the circle and make amends? There was a, a certain degree of guilt there to begin with. I mean, that that was no question when you sit back and look at what, you know, what, while there was great days and, and, and as I said, the life of being a jockey has given us everything and it's given us enough to be able to sustain not being able to work uh, at the moment for for mm. and for the foreseeable future, you know. So the, the, uh, you have to sit back and be thankful for what, racing has given me and I wouldn't change a whole lot to be totally honest with you mm-hmm. I loved every minute of it I, and you know while all the you know what I said about the negative side of things I still loved it <laughs> I mean and, I, and, and I'd love to go back and go at it again and and I wasn't ready to stop when I had to stop but as you said uh, yeah you know the sobering upside of it yes I said a little bit of guilt that I wasn't there for the kids I missed I missed so many. Uh, we were on holiday last week, and uh, you know, cousins of mine, and you know, if, uh, we were sort of a gang of us, and we we're reflecting back on on how much of a prick I actually was because <laughs> I, I I didn't go to weddings, I didn't go to first communions, I didn't go to because if I wasn't, I'd never take a day off writing. That would that wouldn't happen. And if there was a day off, that that one of those things were on, I was preparing for the next day of racing, so I couldn't. I would rarely allow myself go and enjoy myself at, at something and then suffer the consequences in the morning of being four, five, six pound heavier. So I just didn't go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so there, I, I, I don't want any, don't to come across as look, looking for sympathy, but I sacrificed a lot to, to get to where I did and, and to have what I've got and, and I appreciate every bit of it, but there was a huge sacrifice to it. But, but that all being said, uh, and if the truth be not, you know, uh, on the big days at Champions Weekend, Derby Day, uh, Royal Ascot, uh, when I was there, I just like I just wished that I could write. I just wished that I could mm. could be do, still doing it. And but I have said, and I still do feel that it coming to the end, to an end the way it did may. Maybe a little bit of a blessing in disguise because I do feel that if I just retired or I had come past my cell by date and Dermot Well felt that I wasn't up to the job and you know it just came to an end, 
I don't think I would have dealt with retirement very well, yeah. to be honest with you. So there's a, there's, this was forced on me and, you know, it's very distracting. Obviously, there's a lot going on. You have to get on with what we're doing. So I think that that has helped me deal with with um, with retirement or, or, or giving up race riding a, a little bit better. Uh, and it has made me realize what life is all about. This That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. If, if it all came to an end and then so that I had to move on to what am I going to do next? I could have went through, I do feel I'd be that type of person who would have went along for four or five years being an even bigger prick than what I was before. <laughs> wondering, you know, feeling like, what do I do next? Or, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I still want to. So I, uh, there's probably a little bit of a blessing. In it, it, you know, and things happen for a reason. I, I'm fully convinced of that. And, uh, you know, the, what people might say, oh, how, how can you say that when you've got cancer? But I do, and I think that you know it's made me a better person. We're we're much stronger as a family. I've huge respect for my wife more than I ever did, and uh, and to, you know to spend time with the kids growing up, and and now that is that is my priority is to keep going and to be here to see them grow up and 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 be a, be a united family. Like Pat, it's it's extraordinary stuff, and it's the reason why so many people have gravitated towards your story because the mentality, the attitude and everything that you've brought to it and the way you articulate it is such an inspiration for so many people, myself included, whose families are going through uh, this same journey. I totally understand what you mean about it feeling like you wondering about how would you have responded if you had to watch your skills diminish, if you had to actually watch it erode and fade away. Your final memory is of, you know, your last winner being March 16th, 2018. I mean, I'm not saying you you went out at the tip of the top, but it was you at your maximum capacity. And in that Uh, that way, you you don't have the bad memories. Yeah, but you know what? This, again, might sound mad because even, uh, you know, I probably was suffering with, with the illness and didn't know about it, but... You know, I was fighting out the championship with Colin Keane, and mm. uh, and I actually felt that I was riding better than I ever ever rode before, and that that is that is something that I find you know a little bit hard because I actually think I was at my best or getting to my best. I I, I don't know. I think I had a little bit more confidence in myself than I than I had before, and uh, uh, and uh, I just thought I had that feeling before it all came to a. Uh, an abrupt end. I just felt like uh, you know I was, I was, I was just very much at ease at what I was doing, and and, yeah. and you know I thought that you know there was going to be another really good five years in me, and I was looking forward to it. To be honest with you, which I never did before in in the past twenty five, you know, because I was always just clinging on there, thinking that you were never good enough, and you're only you're only you know as good as what happened today, and you're worried about tomorrow. But I was beginning to actually sort of be, enjoy it <laughs> and then it's gone so um, but look that that's like but the only other thing I would say as well that anybody that's going I, I don't want to be portrayed as this great strong inspiration like that, that's a word I don't like inspirational I don't look at myself as being inspirational because I have my bad days don't get me wrong like I wake up and I you know I get fed up with it I get de- I'm not saying depressed but I get 
pissed off and you know I said why I, you know we, I do have that feeling of why me now and again and mm. you know and, and you know so it's not being rosy that you get up every morning bouncing and thinking oh he's a great fella the way he gets through it but I get through it really well on 90% of the time but and then on a bad day everyone's going to and, and anybody that's going through this that if you do have a bad day you know, it, that that's all right too. You don't have to put a face on it. I don't put a face on it. I don't go out there every day. You know, if I, if I feel like I'm in bad form and I don't want it, I just don't go outside again. I I'd be at home and lucky enough to live on a farm that I always wanted to do and I can potter away and hide away here for days if I needed to and not face anybody. But um, but as I said, that that's the one thing I want. I don't want to be portrayed as this fellow that goes around every all day, every day, thinking that it, you know, it's, you know, it's all you know, easy. Yeah. It's it's far from it, and and I have my tough days, the same as everybody else. And you know, weirdly, in in saying that, that is inspirational to people, Pat. This is the this is the the paradox of what you're saying there. That like people actually need to hear See, that they, they, because that's realistic. That you cannot be up all the time. Simple yeah, as that. Not possible. But this goes back to being the Irish lad as well. Like inspirational. <laughs> yeah. How would you? How could you be inspirational? You know. And and I never. I, I actually. It's a word that, that sits very uncomfortable with me since this has all happened. Everyone said, "Oh, you've been inspirational." Uh, you know what is inspirational? At the end of the day, all I do is get up every day and try and cope with it as best as I can and that that's my strategy there's no great magic remedy to it mm. you know that's what I do is just try and get on with it and uh, and and but but the one thing I will say to people is that try and be as positive as you can and like as I said I'm I'm good 90% of the time and I, I, I think you have to, yeah, if it's possible, try and be like that because it, I do feel, this is something that I really do feel that on the days that I don't feel great and I get a little bit depressed about it all, I think you leave yourself very vulnerable to the disease because I think, and this might sound crazy and there's no me- medical uh, research to back this up but I think it feeds on you when, when if you get down uh, and I think it'll overcome you eventually if you do let that negative negativity uh, and in. all those ne- get in yeah. I think if you do I think it'll beat you and I think it's only sitting waiting to do that so I try to keep that out as best you can and I think that will that will tr- help you as much as you possibly I, I, I think it will help you hugely in your recovery or getting through what, what you what you're facing in, in, in or anybody that's in the situation so it, it, that's my advice whether it's whether it's right wrong I don't know but that that's what I feel well I think you know that medical science is pretty limited in some ways because essentially what you're referring to there is something that's kind of outside of the boundaries of what they'll talk to you about in the yeah. in the surgery i don't know if you've seen the movie the farewell but it's a better it's no. a true story of uh, a japanese family where the grandmother was basically no english is diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and it's you know it's curtains and she's yeah. got long left and rather than tell her that and have her go through the grief of knowing that she's probably only going to make another couple of months 
they uh, organize and bring forward the wedding of uh, two of her grandchildren. And at the wedding, they treat it as a farewell party. And instead of making big, uh, lavish speeches about how much they love each other, they end each speech with their tribute to their grandmother. So across the two months, she has no idea that she has uh, stage four cancer. She survives the two months and goes on another six months, still oblivious to the fact that she's got this illness and eventually gets another you know, few years when they gave her two months on the basis they believe that she simply didn't allow it in. You said in another interview that you never for a single moment thought, I'm going to die. Yeah. Why not? I don't know. I just, I just never thought it and I never, and I, and I still won't allow my, myself think that. And that's just the way I am, and maybe that's naive of me. Maybe that is naive of me, but but that's that's. Uh, I feel like oh yes, it's like maybe that the ongoing treatment is going to have to be there for a long, long time, and maybe I'm going to have to, you know. But so be it. I'll, I'll get on with whatever has to be done. But I've no intentions, or I, I, I've never felt like uh, this is going to get the better of me, and you know, bring it to an end in the near future I just will not entertain that whether that is naive maybe it is but that's that's me that's how I can get on with it people what, what I have had you know I, I've beaten the statistics already you know like it's two years nearly coming up on two years and a lot of people don't get that far with this thing and you know I, I, me personally I don't like I hope this doesn't come back to haunt me but I feel better now I feel stronger I'm gaining weight all the time everybody's happy with how things are going it's still there don't get mm. me wrong it's there but uh, I've I've come now I've got my mind conditioned to managing it I did, if we can hold it and manage it I'll live with it and that that's my mindset and that's what I'm going to do and, uh, and and you know nobody knows what tomorrow brings for any of us and that's that's my mindset so I just live for today get up tomorrow do this hopefully be able to do the same and we'll keep going to wherever it gets it gets us to and that that's that's my mindset well pat smullen it's been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast i wish you the very best of luck with everything and hopefully you get to shake your hand in person very very soon we will we'll do that for certain and thank you very much it's a pleasure speaking to you charlotte and uh well, as I said, hopefully, um, you know, it, it can be helpful to other people that may find themselves in the same position that uh, despite what, and, and the only other thing I will say, I'd just like to, when I have the opportunity, uh, it was one piece of advice that was given to me at the beginning is uh, do not Google or read up or try and uh, educate yourself too much on what you, you what pancreatic cancer is because it is a hell of a lot more advanced than what it will tell you. Mm. And I never did and I never will. And all I know is that there is, there is huge advances going on. And with all the money that we raised over Champions Weekend is now helping them to continue and push to find uh, a cure for this. And I've no doubt that they're, they're close. It's going to take time, but there will be a cure for it in the near future. Of that, I'm certain. 
Well, before uh, we go, I want to say to our listeners that we'll have a little bit more with Pat in in a moment. If you want to go and join us on Patreon, I'm going to ask Pat in the final section of the show about that experience of putting together that Legends race and the response that he received from those legends, Ruby Walsh, AP McCoy, among them. And I might also, Pat, if you're up for it, get a couple of tips out of you. Well, I don't know. <laughs> we will try, we'll do our best, but I don't know how fruitful that will be. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, this is kind of like a bonus section that we do for uh, people right. that support the show. We get like little five pound donations from people and they get a little extra content on the other right. side. So I guess the first question is, by uh, all accounts, every single person that you approach with the idea of the Legends race, said it was a no-brainer, absolutely, straight away, I'm in. Despite the fact that AP himself said that he, he was done, he would never sit in the saddle again. You had no trouble convincing them, is that correct? Uh, it might be a little bit of an exaggeration to say no. <laughs> no I, I, I had no... Uh, he took a little bit of persuasion, uh, but not because of the cause or anything uh, like that. He, he he had to lose a stone weight to right. Oh, right. Okay, I didn't right? know that. So, yeah, so he had to lose a stone. So that's a huge commitment. So, mm. he, so look, be honest, when I spoke to him uh, and then, you know, he came back and said, yeah, but, but actually it was, uh, it was AP's um, suggestion. You know what he said? I don't want to, he wanted to ride with the best riders that, that um, if I, he said, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it big, you know, and, and, you know, make a lot of money. And so it was his, it was sort of his idea about getting all the ex champion jockeys mm-hmm. together and uh, so I, everyone that rode in the race had had been a past champion and that was the team then with the champions weekend and that that's where we all came to, to sort of we all sat down and teased it out myself himself and ruby and you know ted durkin rode in it, who was a, one of my best friends mm-hmm. and uh, you know and all of us we sat down and and uh, over over a couple of weeks, we we eventually, you know, that this is what we came up with, and uh, and that's where it all came from. But uh, but everybody wanted to get behind it and and make it as big a success as they could. And uh, I, I'll never be able to thank them enough. Well, God, it was a huge success. Like, I mean, I couldn't I couldn't kind of wrap my head around how much money you made off that specific race. When did you feel like? this has got a bit of momentum now this is going to do something big like this is going to result uh, in employment in research yeah when, when we initially started you know obviously we never had any idea you know aspirations of, of making that amount of money you know I, I i had a target in my head of if we could raise a million euros wouldn't it wouldn't that be amazing and mm. then when i said that you know, people are saying, oh, like a million's a lot, of, which it is, obviously, a huge amount of money. So then I was like, oh, Jesus, oh, yeah, that's a quite, could be, could be a bit ambitious to try and get that. And so I'll be honest with you, we were lying in bed one night with Francis and, and she said to me, what are we after letting ourselves in for here? Because I was awake worrying, is it going to fall flat on its face? It'll be a disaster. And, you know, and uh, and then I was getting behind pushing it, and you know, I was getting starting to get a little bit of publicity, and I was thinking, and then I sort of was digging a hole for myself. I said, if this doesn't work, now I was going to we're going to look right Egypt's, but uh, but thankfully HRI got 
right behind it and and you know to be honest uh barbara white who works in hri and john osborne got right in behind it and they did the amount of work that they did was was phenomenal but when we sort of got got the momentum going everyone just rode in behind it you know from from all the big owners to to the trainers owner supplying horses everybody wanted to to donate the bookmakers the current leperstown were amazing everybody you know so it it started to gain momentum maybe about a month or six weeks into it uh, but i must admit for the first six weeks i was like a bit worried and apprehensive about <laughs> yeah. the whole thing as it, whether it was going to be a bit of a disaster you know i, I think that's amazing that you actually thought it, it mightn't work out uh, when you know now it's just part of the legend that that this thing uh, yeah. did what it did and also the fact that the race itself was was so close did you uh, think to yourself that uh, actually AP winning the race probably the best outcome because he, uh, look, he would it, have been a, a nightmare yeah. to be around if he'd lost oh uh, yeah yeah and like you know realistically to be honest with people, again with people the general public don't see like he made a huge commitment to riding the race so like you know you know he had to set out to to lose a stone in weight and like that took a lot of work mm. and a lot of personal effort from him and and he is super competitive as we all know so he wanted to win as did ruby as did any of the, the nine lads that rode in the race but uh it was just just reward for him to to say that he'd do it in the first place then the effort that he had to put into to ride in the race there's no question him being in the race was a huge attraction to the general public and then for him to win on the day it was just it was an all-round she couldn't write it really, you know yeah. what I mean? It was just amazing, and uh, you know, so it was uh, it was amazing really to, to, for for him to win. There, as I said, you couldn't script it, so it just it brought uh, it brought the end to a great weekend. Him winning, and and then obviously what it did for the charity was was mind blowing, really. Well, here's another question for you, Pat, for the for our patrons here. We ask for the listeners to uh, throw in their questions and. The, you know, one that came up a couple of times was, uh, we, you know, we all know about the big, the big wins. We all have heard of, you know, senior ride winners and classics, but there has to have been moments on the track where you feared for your life or where you had an absolute nightmare on the track because as you say not all these horses are great animals some of them don't actually want to do it and some of them are less inclined to do it and it's your job to convince them what is the one that stands out as maybe the scariest moment you've had on a track uh, I, I look I was very very fortunate uh, throughout my career to not have had any really bad injuries to me but I did have unfortunately again going back to the welfare thing people don't like to hear but in Dubai I used to spend the winters in Dubai for oh, many years uh, and, and like it was like home away from home mm. but uh, uh, one day I I was a sprint tra- a sprint race over six furlongs on the dirt track in, in the old Nadal Sheba and at halfway a horse took a heart attack with me and uh, it, it just for that 
split second or 30 seconds or how long it goes on for, I don't know. But anyway, we both of us ended up in, in, in the golf course. He, he just, oh my just took the, you know, so just crashed through the rails and out onto the golf course. And, uh, yeah, so that, that, that was probably the scariest because I was, it seemed to go on forever because I stayed with the horse and he, he stayed up and, uh, but eventually obviously he, he crashed through the rails and out onto the golf course. So, a lot of the time, these accidents that you may have, it, it, they're over before you actually even get time to mm. think about it. Mm. But that that was the one where it seemed to go on forever and in uh, slow motion, that, in slow mo, and uh, that that was uh, that wasn't a nice nice moment at all. No. Now tell me this, I like when I talked to Richard about it. Like he had a similar kind of experience. I don't know if you remember a horse going through the rails with him out in the in the far east. And yeah. it was actually quite close to when he retired, but he went, yeah. he went, I always, whenever I'm referring to this in horse racing, my mind always goes arse over tit because that's yeah. what you say. But yeah. he properly, you know, skidded along on his back. Uh, it, it, it actually reminded me of the similar situation that was in the new Maidan track that's there, but it was something very similar to what happened. It brought back. When I was watching, I actually watched that race live from home, yeah. and I saw it. I saw it happening, and it brought back the memories of what uh, had happened to me. But yeah, that, that similar situation, and and, I, and it's interesting to see to, for Richard to say that that was probably one of the days that he uh, would say was uh, one of the scariest ones because uh, it even watching it live looked like it went on forever. The mm. horse just eventually ended up getting to the outside rail and then going through it. You know, yeah. so. So um, he talked about losing the nerve and that like, you know, you can and the, there are cases where you actually lose your your nerve, your sense that I, I can I can do this. Did that ever wobble after something like that? Because we've all had difficulty, say, if we've taken a fall off a bike, think, yeah. reluctance to get back on one. I was very, very fortunate because, as I said, you know, I didn't have, I, I had some bad falls, but just not, not frequently. So that I was very lucky that way. And I must admit that my bottle, as they call it, was a hundred percent, a hundred percent when I stopped because I actually, to be honest with you, Jared, from, from a very early age, I made, cause I, I had seen other riders that you knew their bottle had gone and whether it was for financial reasons or fear of giving up or whatever it may be, carried on for a couple of years longer than they should have. And I, I made myself the promise that I said, I'm not going to be that type of person. So if, if I woke up one morning and felt like oh, I'm a little bit scared about this, I would have stopped immediately. Wow. So so you knew jockeys that had lost the bottle. Oh, no, no, it's, it's a very common thing. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous sport, as you know, like, but, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a huge difference to riding out horses and exercising them on the gallops in the mornings to being put in the middle of a, a 30 runner, 20 runner field and you're like sardines uh, going around there and there is no margin for error whatsoever. Mm. You know, that's a whole different ball game to what people may perceive as, as riding a horse. So when you're in that environment and and if you feel scared, you're a, you're a liability to yourself and you're a liability to everybody else around you. And I I must I I must admit that I I, I made that uh, promise to myself at a very early young age that uh, if I felt that that was 
the case that I, I felt scared, I'd stop immediately. And uh, But, yeah, it happens to riders on a regular basis where they just wake up and, you know, they feel like, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And nine times out of ten, it, it's because they, they, they have lost their bottle, as they call it. So whenever I'm at a public event and uh, there's no other comedians there, the relief when I see one that I can gravitate towards that person, it's nearly like you speak the same language and that Mm. to some extent you're keeping up appearances for the general public. And then when you talk to another comedian, it's like they get it. We, We we're bonded through this weird job that we have. Yeah. Is it the same way for jockeys? Very much so. Very much so. And if there's one thing that I miss the most, and uh, everybody says this, that it is, is the banter of the way room and uh, the, you know, the, you know, the, the security of, of being in there and it's an access, you know, there, there's no access to anybody else other than the writers and mm. the ballads. And, you know, so you can, it, it's, it's a, it's a it's a whole different uh, little community in there, and uh, and yeah, I can relate exactly to you because as you say, you do you speak a different language, and, and each each and every one gets each other, and uh, and whether it's whether it's uh, you know issues of uh, personal problems that you may have, or or racing problems, or business say things, you can speak to to your colleagues and friends in there, and and you can get. Uh, comfort from from that and advice and it makes you know can can help you in so many ways and i must admit that 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 is what i miss most now is is the banter that 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 is uh within the the, yeah. the jockey's wear on yeah i mean you can't you literally can't replace it and also you can't get back in there as as you say no no you're, you're gone and yeah. and, and any time that in in recent times i've often called in just to say hello to the lads or whatever but you know i felt out of place i just felt like yeah. you know i shouldn't be here so crashing and, the party but, yeah and when i was a writer and i saw others coming in you'd say hey, what's he doing here you know what i mean so um yeah it, 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 your time comes and goes and and now I would very rarely go in there unless I have to see somebody or, or ask to see somebody. Uh, otherwise, it's it's a it's just a, it's a no go area. So, what about the, those tips, right? Before we get to it, right? I know that you know Cheltenham's around the corner, and uh, everybody's suddenly an expert. <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone with an Irish accent over here in England suddenly becomes gets hit up with text messages from people going, "You must surely know with that accent uh, what to back." Among jockeys, I I know it's it's taboo, and you, you know it's against the rules. But like you guys certainly know more if we go back to that sense, that word that we talked about at the start, that like, are you the best possible judges of these animals and capable of giving the best uh, tips or are you the worst? We're the worst. And, and anyone that tells you, now, don't get me wrong, of course, some are very, very intelligent, clever and read the form better than others. But, you know, I've gone to the races, sharing a car, as you know, with four other lads, which is the thing we do in Ireland a lot of the time. And you'd be traveling down and there'd be a maiden in Killarney. And we've got three hours drive ahead of us. And by the time we get to the races, everyone would be confused as to who's going to win uh, uh, the maiden because you'll have 
Kevin Manning who's riding for Jim Bulger he fancies his to win I fancy mine of Dermot Wells to win Fran Berry would be riding one of Jessica Harrington's he'd fancy his to win and so on and so forth so by the time you get to the races everyone's absolutely confused as to who's <laughs> going to win and, and, and that is that is fact you know because mm. especially in those maidens where there's no form to go on and you, you know it's all about your own opinion on, on what you think of what you've got but, uh, you know, yeah, of course, I've gone to the races when I've ridden horses. I distinctly remember leaving here to ride a, a free eagle. It was a very good horse that we had with Dermot and won the Prince of Wales in, in Royal Alaska, which was his biggest day. But when he ran a leper sound in his maiden, uh, and I'll be honest with you, betting was never anything that interested me. I just didn't have any interest in it then, and I don't have any interest in it now. And uh, uh, But I left here, and I said to Francis after, I, I, I used to do my farm for about an hour before I go racing every day, and rarely would we speak about racing. She, you know, she'd never ask me, what do you think of this or that or the other? But I got up from the table and I said to her, this is the biggest certainty I've ever ridden in my life, going to the races. And, and between her and myself, we didn't have a, a penny on them. <laughs> so so that, that'll tell you, you know. But I've seen so many people, though, you know, bet, betting is a big part of the industry and I, I understand that. But I've seen a lot of people... I've seen a lot of misery from mm. from from uh, from backing uh, betting and backing horses and uh, and as, as I said, it was something that never interested me. But uh, but follow the farm I have done all my life. So to to get to it, have you heard anything? This was what I always found with Adrian was whether he was a good judge or not, he was hearing more things than I was. And I can remember going to the Derby in around 1996 and cleaning up on the basis of the information that was doing the rounds that he had heard. You must <laughs> hear something about what's coming up in terms of this well, festival of racing that's about. I'd be a little, little, bit, little bit out of the loop as regards the jumping, you know, but... Mm. Uh, and I didn't hear anything, but, but but my honest, my own opinion of I think Fakir Dudar is of Joseph O'Brien, who will run in. I think he'll run in the Arkle. Uh, I think he, I think he is a serious bet for for that and uh, or whatever race he runs in at Cheltenham because uh, I t- I felt that t- a few things went wrong for him at Leperstown in in the Arkle at Leperstown. I think he should have won. And uh, he's a very, very good, accurate jumper at speed. And he's he's my banker of Cheltenham. Well, look, that's as good a place as any to leave it, Pat. I mean, if people aren't happy with the chat we've had today, walking away with a tip at the end, they can forget about it. This has been an amazing (laughs) chat, Pat. And thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate you taking the time. Not at all. It's It's been my pleasure. Take care and have a good week there, Pat. All the best. You too. Thanks, Jared. Cheers. Bye. Speak soon. Bye-bye.